faithful. Now let's get right into it this morning. Turn in your Bibles to the book of John. John chapter 2, if you would please. John chapter 2. We're beginning a new chapter today in John and a new sub-series in the whole book. Chapter 1, we saw that Jesus was presented as deity. He was presented as God who became a man. His deity was declared by seven names, seven works, and seven witnesses. If I had to write a subtitle to the book of John totally, it would be, Behold Your God. If I had to subtitle chapter 1, it would be, God With Us. Now then, we're going to enter into a new section, and I'm calling it Jesus' Public Popularity. Up through chapter 4, he was very popular, almost unopposed. Everything changes in chapter 5, but we're going to look at this section together. We're going to read. Stephen, come on up here. Steve is going to come read for us again, intern with us, and very gifted. Come on. Morning, Grace Church. Uh, if you would please stand with me as we get into our passage this morning. Um, as Pastor Phil said, we are going to be exiting John chapter 1 and in John chapter 2. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, or I believe it should be on the screen, we'll be reading together John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if it's on the screen, please read with me the reading of God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there was set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him." This is the word of the Lord. Father, please add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word this morning. May I not add an unnecessary thought or word. May I not skip anything that you want said. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And you can be seated. We're so glad that you're here today. I want to tell you, I believe in signs, wonders, and miracles. <clears throat> I believe that they happen. I believe every word the Bible says about the miraculous. A person only has to look as far as Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, the first verse in the Bible to find out that miracles happen because that verse says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And um, I don't know about you, but to create everything out of nothing, for there to be zip and then all of a sudden there to be all of this stuff in six days, that's amazing. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and that's a miracle, Amen. Amen. Well, I believe it. Somebody might say, well, that's sort of naive and certainly requires a lot of faith. Yes, it does. 
But I will add a little thought to that. The alternative to believing in Genesis 1-1 is to believe that the heavens and the earth created themselves. And I think it takes far more faith than I can muster. I believe in a God who can and does perform miracles. I do not believe in a lot of the frauds and the charlatans uh, that parade across the stage of Christianity reporting to do all sorts of wonders all the while doing them at a certain time on a certain day and always in conjunction with an offering plate or an offering bucket. I witnessed it firsthand. Benny Hinn was in Lima, Peru, and boy, you would have, should have seen what he did to those poor, poor people every single service. Nevertheless, I believe in miracles. I believe in a supernatural God, and God is not bound by the laws of nature. Now, please pay attention. There are no such thing, really, as laws of nature. There are only God's laws that nature must obey. That's very important. Gravity works because God made it to work. And so we're going to look at the first of seven major miracles today leading up to the resurrection of Christ in the book of John. Now, Jesus did many, many more miracles than these seven. And uh, we've been talking about that in our key verse, John 20, 30, 30 through 31. It says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written for a purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You see, there's a purpose behind the miracles or the signs that the Lord performed. Uh, Jesus just did not put on a spectacle or a miracle on demand just to wow people. Nope, there was a reason. He did them according to his purpose. He did them in his own name, and he did them for the glory of the Father. Now, I want to emphasize these words. You've got a sheet that you were able to pick up as you came in, or else you look on your electronic device. I want to emphasize the words that Peter used on Pentecost referring to the ministry of Jesus. He said this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, during his sermon that he preached, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or proved by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you also know. Everybody there was the witness. Everybody knew that he'd done these things. And he used those three words, miracles, wonders, and signs. Now, I want you to fill this out on your sheet. First of all, miracles teach a message. It's not just a miracle for a miracle's sake. Miracles, miracles teach a message. And the word miracle in the Scriptures in the New Testament is the word dunamis. Dunamis. And it means powerful, mighty work. And here's something for you. The word miracle in its Greek form, don't know why they translated it various ways, but the word miracle does not appear in the book of John. It's not in there. It's not there. There's another word, wonders. And wonders amaze you or they amaze us. Uh, wonder is the word teras, T-E-R-A-S. It is not really about the act or the prodigy that the Lord performed. It's really not talking about that. But the word teras is the reaction of the people as they look at what Jesus has just done. And it's, it's the wow factor. It's like, you know, oh, incredible. Wow, I, Jesus just did this or he did that or he raised somebody from the dead. It's, it's like the factor you see when somebody does some feat of seen impossibility in some, uh, in some magic show or something and you're just wowed by it. That's the word terrorist. It's your reaction. It's not the actual act. 
It occurs one time in the whole book of John, chapter 4, verse 48. Then there's this third word, the word sign. And that word sign appears many times in John. And I want you to know that signs signify something. It's the Greek word semion, and it means just that, a sign, an indicator, a significant informative signpost. So let me illustrate. Look up here on the screen, and uh, we, will, we will see what I'm talking about. If you're going somewhere and you see that, uh, you see that on your way, you don't stop, bow down and worship that or kiss that or anything. You just say, oh, thanks. Now I know that up ahead there's some curves. So the sign warns you, tells you something in advance. Next one. Then there's that one. Now I would not really be in, I would not really enjoy <laughs> driving down the road and seeing that sign right there. Look at the next one. That one, that, I, that sign has cost me money more than once in my life because, you know, it's one way and I didn't pay attention. Well, anyway, let's go to the next sign. There's one. The sign tells you something. Up ahead, there's going to be a beautiful overlook. Next. There's this one, road ends. So that's an indicator. It gives you information, vital. You don't want to speed up. You want to slow down. All right, next. Sasquatch crossing right there. Now, I don't know how you want to react to that one, but if, you, if you've got a reaction to that, we can meet you for prayer right over. Anyway, then I love this one. This is my favorite one. Beware smartphone zombie ahead. <laughs> I think that's a great one. Like people not paying attention, walking across the road. What is the deal with these signs? Well, the signs signify. They give you information. They point ahead. They tell you about something that is coming. So what are signs? Signs in the Scripture point to a reality. They do not point to themselves. In our reading in verse 11, it says what happened in Nathaniel's hometown was the beginning of signs. This connects the event to what happened at the end of chapter 1 because there was, Nathaniel was the last one that came to Christ, and now then we're back in his hometown in chapter 2. And so uh, this beginning of prodigies that signify this, they signify that the one who is doing them, the Messiah, he is the Christ and by believing in his name, we can have eternal life. That's key verse, John chapter 20, 30, and 31. Now, folks, <clears throat> we in life are not to seek the signs. We are to seek the Savior. And we do not worship the miracles. We worship the miracle worker. You know what's wrong with the world in which we live today that want to worship planet Earth? They want to make a God out of Mother Nature. They are breaking the biggest rule of all in Romans chapter 1. Instead of worshiping the Creator who is blessed forever, they want to worship the things that He has made, make a God out of them. And we're all, we're all susceptible to that. Now, the Jews were always looking for signs. Uh, and the more signs they got, the more they wanted. Miracles, folks, signs, prodigies, wonders, they do not always produce faith. But here's what they always did produce for the Jews and for many today. If you see miracles, then what do you want? You want more? And so it wasn't about worshiping Jesus. If you remember, they chased him around the Sea of Galilee wanting to see another sign and another sign. Eventually, Jesus said to them, it's a wicked and an adulterous generation that's always seeking for a sign because you just want to consume the bread that I made. That's all you want. That's all you're interested in. Signs. They are... They are vitally important, but they don't point to themselves. They point 
to Jesus. Now, don't forget this, folks, that the Antichrist in the end times, according to the Scriptures, the Antichrist is coming doing the same kinds of signs. He's going to be doing miracles. You say, well, the devil can't do miracles. I, I, I beg, you, beg your pardon with you. Listen to this. Beg to differ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one. Speaking of the Antichrist, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deceiving or deception among those who perish. Why will they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, we live at a time and in a world that really is not interested in the truth. We've been hearing it for three years now. Oh, we're just trying to pay attention to the science. No, they're not. They're trying to pay attention to whatever their little heart desires, and they want to live out what's in their heart, not what reality is. They did not, they weren't awake, and they didn't love the truth, and so because of that, they could not be saved. Now, we come to this little story, this passage, this episode or pericope, and uh, here's what's happening. It seems that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was helping with the wedding. Maybe she was responsible for some of the food and the wine because she was the one that took action. Jesus and his disciples are invited to attend this wedding. The wedding took place, get this, the wedding took place just seven days after his revelation, just four days after Andrew and Peter were called, just three days after the recruitment of Philip and Nathaniel. So he's got this little group of followers, and now what's he going to teach these disciples first? What is going to be this on-the-job training that they are going to have? Well, we can look at it and think, well, you know, maybe he'll have a long classroom session on how to do word studies in the Old Testament. Nope. Will he instruct them on the king's clues to clout? I mean, how to use your position for power in the world. Is it going to be on the Lord's leadership principles? Maybe, maybe he's going to get these guys together, sit around a campfire, and they're going to do long-range goals and planning for the kingdom. Nope, that's not what happened. He said to those newly initiated followers. He said to them, hey guys, let's go to a wedding. First thing he did, he went to a wedding, the first full day of apprenticeship, and they are going to a wedding. I just want to pull over and say that Jesus attends both weddings and funerals in the gospel. He had time for both. That's an amazing thing to me. He's here to save the world. He's got three years of public ministry, but he had time for social events. I need to learn more about that personally in my own heart. So watch. I want to say this to you, Jesus still attends all weddings today. He's a witness. Uh, he hears every promise we make, and he is the primary witness of our covenant. There's all kind of lame excuses that are given for breaking the covenant that do not convince the Lord. And I just want to say to you, you say, well, you really hurt my feelings this morning because I can't change the past. Look, the past is under the blood, and it can be forgiven, and you can move on from here and move forward and ask God to bless you in every step of your way in life. But I'm just telling you, I'm telling you for the benefit of those that are sitting here and contemplating something that God says in the book of Malachi chapter 2 that he hates I just want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus is present at every wedding, and he is a witness to our promises and covenants, and he takes it seriously. We better take it seriously, too. Jesus wasn't very good when he went to funerals. They never could continue with the funeral because there never was a corpse by the time he got done with his attendance. So let me just move on to the next one now. So what does this turning the water into wine signify. You said it's a sign, sign signifies something. So what is it signifying? What does it mean? 
I wish you would let the Holy Spirit of God, and I wish you would let the passage of Scripture encourage your heart and bring real joy to you this morning. How many of you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? You are true believers. Say amen, raise your hand. Amen. All right, now listen to me. Let the joy of the Lord, because of what you understand from the Scriptures, fill your soul no matter what the circumstances are of your life. This is so important. So what do I need to do? What did you get out of this? Well, the first thing I'd like you to write down on your sheet is we need to heed good advice for life. Heed good advice for life. Mary said this, whatever he says to you, do it. And that is the secret to getting in on God's blessing in life is to find out what Jesus would like you to do and to do it. Obey the Lord Jesus. Psalm 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Don't serve the Lord with drudgery. Serve the Lord with gladness and with joy. And then it says in John 14, 15, prove your love to him with obedience. And I just want to say something here about Mary. It's interesting. If you look in your passage there, it says here in verse 3, when, uh, in verse number 2, well, wait a minute, verse 1. Uh, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Interesting. Mary is never called by her proper name in John's gospel, not one time. She's called the mother of Jesus or Jesus' mother. In fact, from this episode that we have right here, she disappears from the book of John, with except for a brief encounter outside a house when they said your mother and brothers are here. She doesn't really show up as a primary figure again until she's standing at the foot of the cross, and Jesus says, woman... Behold your son and John or son, behold your mother. Until that, it's, there's not a word, not a reference to Mary at all. <laughs> kind of interesting. That, now, there's been all kinds of material written saying that, well, Jesus disrespected his mother. Not so at all. Uh, he didn't do that, but here's what he did do. It's no disrespect intended. However, it is pointing out that at this point in his life, Mary's maternal influence has run its course. It's time to listen only to his father. It probably started when he was 12 years old. Didn't you know I need to be about my father's business? Now then, it's not, it's not disrespect. He's the one that says, let's take care of mom when he's on the cross. It's not about disrespect. He's simply saying, it's time for me to be about my father's business. But here is something very significant. Mary's only instructions in the Bible are given in this verse. The only time you will ever see Mary telling anybody what to do anywhere in the Bible is in this verse. And in this verse, she didn't say, read the rosary, do this, do that, I'm the co-redemptrix. No, 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 no. She didn't say any of that. I'm not even going down that road. I'm just going to tell you, here's what she said. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Boy, what good advice for us today. If he says to do it, do it. And that is a tremendous, tremendous truth from God's Word. Here's some thoughts about that. Obedience lets God's servants in on what God's secrets are. Verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that, it, that, that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who drew the water knew, the master of the feast feast called on the bridegroom. And we don't understand this picture. He didn't call on somebody else. He called on the bridegroom. You see, the bridegroom and the, and the, and the betrothed's family were responsible for the feast. And there's even cases of, of legitimate 
court cases rising because there wasn't enough food or there wasn't enough wine at these feasts. So the master here, what we have here is that the servants were there and present and they obeyed what Mary told them and what Jesus told them when he said, fill the water pots. And they were in on this first miracle. The first miracle was a private miracle. Mary, the servants, and a few disciples knew what was going on, but the people of the wedding just kept celebrating. You know, the last sign that Jesus is going to do is the one where he raises Lazarus. That wasn't private. Everybody knew. It was very, very public. Here's another thought. Obedience makes God's servants a blessing to everyone else. Because his servants did what they were supposed to do, then everybody there at that wedding, they didn't, I mean, they never missed a beat. It was even, it got better as the day went on because of the obedience of the servants. It's beautiful. Everybody was blessed when they obeyed. I just want to tell you today that uh, uh, society today is blessed when God's children obey his word as well. I'll even go a little step further. When you teach your children to obey, your neighbors are going to be blessed. And everybody that has to deal with your family. Obedience. Obedience uses God's servants to bring him glory. And God can do without us to bring himself glory. He does it every morning with the sunrise. He does it every evening with the sunset. He's bringing himself glory all over the world. I showed you pictures of waterfalls here a couple of weeks ago. But you know, the Lord usually uses instruments that is his servants to bring himself glory. Glory. This is an amazing thought. Jesus alone can save the world, but he has decided not to save the world alone. He's decided to use people. Now, these servants did no miracle that day, but they helped by obediently filling the pots with water. That took some effort. The disciples did not multiply the bread at the feeding of the 5,000, but they did pass it out at the Lord's command. The blind man who had mud put on his eyes was told to go wash in the pool. He couldn't heal his own eyes, but he could do what God said and go, what Jesus said and go wash his eyes in the pool. The men of Bethany could not raise Lazarus from the dead, but they could roll the stone away. This is awesome. It's awesome for us to think that God wants us to collaborate in his incredible work in the world. And so the world is blessed when, when, when his servants obey him. Now, don't miss the point of filling the empty pots this morning, these empty water pots, stone pots. Ephesians 4.26 says it's by the washing of the water of the word that the church was sanctified and cleansed. John 15.3 at the last supper, the foot washing, Jesus, that was going on. And he said, look, I only need to wash your feet because you're already clean by the word of God. The woman at the well heard the words of Jesus, that he had the words of life. And as he was speaking to her, he said, look, if you'll just uh, understand what I'm saying to you, you will become a fountain of life overflowing to other people. Now, folks, I want to tell you this morning as believers, we can't convert a single soul, not one. But what we can do is we can pour in the water of the word. It's so important for us to continually spread the good news of the gospel. Now, number two is the most important thing I want to share with you today. Point two, that is to come to the true source for joy. Come to the true source for joy. Let's make sure we define our terms. I'm not talking about giddiness. 
I'm not talking about, you know, uncontrolled laughter. I'm not talking about a pasty grin on your face. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about joy, which is lasting even when the doctor said cancer or the boss said you're fired or the business went collapse or anything. Joy is something altogether different. You see, joy is an unending understanding and contentment knowing that in God, in Jesus, we have faith and hope and the future is always brighter than it is today. Joy. Joy is that abiding presence of the Lord. And so it's so important. Come to the true source for joy. So in our story today, we recognize several things. One, joy is fleeting. Joy is fleeting. Sometimes we have it, sometimes we don't. Here is a wedding occasion. It's supposed to be festive. It's a time for rejoicing. But a disaster was looming at the wedding at the little city of Cana, just north of the Sea of Galilee. Why? Because the wine ran out. Let me go into that a moment. Wine was a symbol of blessing and happiness in both Old and New Testament. Listen to the Word of God in Psalm 104, 104.14. This is speaking about what God does. God causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth. Watch this. Now listen. This is the Bible, not Phil Winfield. And wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart or strengthens his soul. Now listen to me. Wine and oil and, and bread, all of these things, gifts of God for the benefit of man. That word wine bothers some of you, doesn't it? Now, let's not get sidetracked in our study, nor, nor should we go into some sort of mental gymnastics to say that, well, then, <clears throat> Jesus only made grape juice. No, I, 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 beg to, I, I beg to differ with you. Listen to the scriptures. Jesus is truly going to turn the water and did turn the water into wine, not merely grape juice. How do we know that? Because the reaction of the master of the feast gives it away. Uh, Here's what happened. He said, uh, it's the custom to give the best wine at the first so that once they have had some, they will not notice the drop in the quality of the drink. There's a second reason. In the New Testament, in fact, in the Bible, some of these are transfer words. Oinos, yayin, and tirosh are all the words that are used for the word vine, and they always mean fermented drink from the fruit of the vine. That's what they always mean. Now, don't overreact thinking that this is some sort of permission slip to run for the Jack Daniels. That's not what this is. Now, pay attention. Listen to this. Listen to the Word of God. Jesus did nothing to contradict his own condemnation of drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin, and it's the sign of an unbeliever, not a believer. The Bible is full of reasons to be very careful. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and so on. The Bible says in, in, in uh, uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 12, blesses the man who does not condemn himself, and what he approves, or verse 22. Uh, and then the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and following, the days are evil. Be careful how you walk. Don't, be, don't get caught by the world that you're living in. There's all kinds of reasons for that. But here's the point. Jesus turned the water into wine because he wanted to make sure that the joy of that celebration continued. Now, uh, joy, I have to move on, says has no earthly supply. There's no earthly supply for joy. They were in danger of losing the joy in their celebration. 
Are you lacking joy today? Are you lacking meaning and purpose in life? Are you running short on the motivation on the inside? Are you disappointed with the way things are turning out in your life? You've done your best. You made your plans. You worked your plan. But discouragement, deception, and disappointment. How many of you have been disappointed at certain things and certain elements of the way life turned out? Will you just raise your hand? Disappointment. The truth is the clowns will only make you laugh for a certain period of time. The movie comes to an end. They are going to blow the whistle and the game will be over. And entertainment has a finish. The new house, the new car, new relationships, they're all going to lose their luster very quick, quickly. The travel, the cruise, the adventure, and the joy that you can provide for yourself is going to run out. Proof positive of this is the man Solomon in the Bible. Solomon. Who was Solomon? Well, Solomon had the money and the wherewithal to try everything to bring himself joy. And what did he say? Vanity of vanity, all is vanity under the sun. Because you can't provide lasting joy for yourself. Here's something else, and even more serious. Joy has no religious resource. No religious resource. The six stone water pots were there, and they were empty. That's significant. The water pots were the kind that were used in Judaism. Look at verse number six. Now there were set six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Bunch of water, each one held, and they were the purification pots. Everybody used them even at dinners, and I'm sure they even washed themselves as they were coming there, purification pots, because you had to wash yourself before you'd touch anything. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees went through ridiculous, incredible washings before they would do anything. So these ritual external cleansings. The ceremony of religious ritual could not bring them continual joy because the pots always run out. Religious activity never filled anybody with joy. This is more, there is more to our Christian life, folks, today than endurance. Did you know that we're supposed to be delighted in our Christian life, not just, not just uh, duty-oriented in our Christian life? Did you know that? It's supposed to bring us joy. Uh, these, these people, they could light a candle, read a rosary, get baptized in every dunk tank in Des Moines. You could join every church. You could try to combine the teachings of all religions into one religion and observe all of the tenets, and you will still find the pot empty, meaningless, and without hope because joy has no religious resource. Can I just say this? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we as believers could stop enduring religion and start enjoying salvation? enjoying it, the joy of the Lord. I got to say this, Jesus is for joy. Jesus is for joy. John says that repeatedly in his gospel and in his epistle. I'm not going to even read all the references, but over and over that your joy may be full, that your joy may be full. This first miraculous occasion tells us that Jesus is interested in joy for our lives. I'm afraid, and I'm just talking to you now, I'm afraid that there's some sort of moratorium on real joy, and it's been going on for a long time. I think that coming out of what we have been enduring with COVID, and now what we're enduring with all kinds of nuttiness, and we can talk about it, I seem like the world's collapsing, and the sky is falling, and the economy's tanking, and the southern border's wide open, and I can go on and on and on and on and on. And we just, oh, the whole world's thing. I mean, it's just, I mean, we could just talk about how everything is so terrible. 
But a believer's got another source of joy than the externals around him. He's got something on the inside. We have joy on the inside, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And people can't just seem to find lasting joy. Can I ask you a question, dear believer, brothers and sisters in Christ? I just want to ask you a question. I've been pastoring this church almost 21 years. I was a part of this church for five years before I went to Peru and associated with it for 13 years and came back from time to time, and I've been watching. And I'm just telling you, we're running short on joy at Grace Church. What? Yeah, I'm talking about the fact that we somehow, we think there's some sort of virtue in gloominess, some sort of virtue in somber behavior or subdued worship. Do you think that we might be out of line if we are boisterous in our joy? Do you know the Bible is full of singing and shouts of joy and high-sounding cymbals and enormous choirs put together for dedications and special occasions? Okay, let's get personal. Does God's goodness and greatness ever lead you to rushes of emotion in your soul? I mean, at least in the shower? Does joy unspeakable and full of glory ever arrive to you? And you're, well, Pastor Phil, you know, you're from the South. And, and, and people down there are just crazy and they're loud and they just go nuts and they, and they shout and say hallelujah. We're just more sophisticated, a little bit more, just a little bit more subdued. And, you know, I know you can worship without saying a word. But, you know, from time to time, there ought to be some sort of holy grin come over our face Whenever we're singing these songs and we're preaching these sermons and we're serving our God, there ought to be something that just assures our heart that we have a king and he's ruling and he's coming and we belong to him and we've got another destination. This is not all there is. Amen. This is not it. Are you listening? He said, well, you just want an outpour of emotion. I'm just wondering if you're dead or not. I'm not looking for an outpouring of emotion. I'm looking for somebody that is just no matter what they know on the inside. We got the habit of looking for joy in riches like the rich young ruler. We look for joy in relationships, sometimes serial relationships, even Christians. Today's world looking for joy in perversions of relationships. Some look for joy in religion. (laughs) You're not going to find it in religion. Notice that these were ordinary stone pots that were filled with ordinary water in an ordinary way. The men had gone to a well to get the water or gone to a stream to get the water and fill the pots. Jesus said to them, fill them to the brim. (laughs) Jesus didn't intend to just give them enough to quench their thirst. He, for the moment, he intended to give them enough to bless their hearts for all time. He said, draw out now and give to the master of the feast. The question is, where did they get the water? Obviously, they had to do a little work. They went to a well and they brought it up or else they walked down to a spring. You know, Jesus turned the water into wine in the six pots. But what we need to understand is he could have turned the whole well into wine if he wanted to. There's no limit to Jesus. If you want to study that this afternoon, read Ezekiel 47 about the increasing flow of God's goodness and grace in that new Jerusalem temple. He filled the empty ritualistic pots. And what did he fill them with? Himself. Do you know what we're supposed to be full of all the time? The presence of the Holy Spirit of God and the person of Jesus Christ. It ought to always assure our hearts before him. Always. 
He was more than the Old Testament law could supply, and he offers himself as a well of salvation, of hope and joy to everyone. The source is Jesus, and he's a never-ending supply. I'm standing up here this morning, and I'm, I'm going through the same stuff that everybody else on the planet's going through. My family's getting old and dying. I got one relative left, one. Everybody, I'm, I'm going through the same stuff. I'm living in the same economy. I've got the same government. I, I'm, I'm going through this. And you know what? I'm drinking from a fountain that never runs dry. Let's drink from the fountain that never runs dry. And Jesus, Jesus makes sure that there's always more than enough, folks. There were 12 baskets of bread left over when he fed the 5,000. The prodigal son, he went back to his father's house and found that there was bread to spare in his father's house. When Jesus gets involved in a fishing expedition, they catch so many that it nearly sinks the boat. You see, God's not running out. You understand that? Jesus is not running out. And he will fill us with joy. John 10, 10, I've come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Write this reference down. If you never read this verse, go read it. Isaiah 12, 2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for Yah, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Joy. This is the first sign of Jesus. Just the first. What was the first thing he did? He brought joy. First thing he did is bring joy. Amazing. When Moses did his first miracle, he turned water to blood under the law. The first miracle that Jesus did under grace is to turn water into wine. Every apple that the world offers you has a worm in it. Only Jesus can give you what Peter talked about in 1 Peter 1, 8. Speaking of Jesus, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I just wonder, is anybody in the whole room this morning that can just help me out here with just simply saying, I do have the joy of the Lord in my heart and amen. Can I hear an amen this morning? Anybody? The Lord is in my life. He's present and I'm hurting and I got problems and there's difficulties and, and I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's a too much week for the money. I don't know if there's going to be enough, but God is enough. Joy. Oh, this is so awesome. Now, we need to stop and look where the real source of joy came from. It was purchased for at a great price. The wells of salvation were open for all who believed at a hill called Golgotha. Some 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was crucified, his hands, his feet, his side were pierced, and out flowed the blood, the blood that gave us life to provide a well of forgiveness and joy. And, and let's remember where it comes from, the sacrifice of Jesus offers forgiveness. So heed good advice, come to the true source for joy in just a moment to say, be encouraged and optimistic about the future because the best is yet to come. Verse 10, they thought they had the best at the first of the wedding, but the best was yet to come. <laughs> you know, the devil offers his best at the first. He's going to try to get people hooked on his way at the very first Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth will be filled with gravel. Hebrews eleven twenty five. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Oh, there's pleasure in sin for a little while. 
but it's a very little while. Proverbs 23, 31, don't look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. You know what? You can drink from the devil's brew, but you can't drink without dealing with a serpent's bite. Everything the devil offers is like that. But then on the other hand, the Lord Jesus, here's how he starts. He starts with forgiveness and a clear conscience and the promise of everlasting life. And then it just gets better from there. We used to sing it every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. The Gaithers used to sing it. It says, it gets sweeter as the days go by. It gets sweeter as the moments fly. His love is richer, deeper, fuller, sweeter. Sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Why? Because eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love them. But we can see them by faith. We know they're out there. Proverbs 10, 22, the blessings of the Lord make you rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. What is the lesson, Pastor? What are you trying to say? One word, transformation. He transformed the plain water of life into the wine of joy and the oil of gladness. The miracle has a message for you. Jesus performed a miracle but with a purpose. His purpose is so that you would believe that he is the Christ and that believing you can have life in his name. I just want to finish with this statement. God is offering you more than luck. He's offering you life, eternal life. Some of us have tried to fill up life with relationships, with alcohol, with drugs, with money, with parties, and a million other things, but it won't work and it won't last. But eternal life and the joy of the Lord is forever this morning. Father, draw people to yourself and encourage that soul that needs to be encouraged in the name of Jesus. I'm going to come stand right down here, and I'm going to dismiss the crowd. And when I dismiss the crowd, I'm going to ask a few of my helpers, like staff members or elders and pastors, wives, deacons. I'm going to ask you to come down here and just stand here and be ready to pray with people. Because I just know that there are people that need to pray and tell God, I've let things rob me of my joy. I want the joy back. Maybe you're here and you've never been saved. You've never said, Jesus, save me from my sin. And you're, you're helpless and hopeless and you're headed for hell. Come talk to us and let us share from the Scriptures how you can trust Jesus to be your Savior. God, do your work. Only you can do it. In Jesus' name.